James chapter 1. Are you guys there? We're going to look at verses 12 to 18 today, so let's read those and then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And Father, I pray that as we talk about this part of Scripture, that Lord, our faith would be built, that we'd have an understanding of what it means to overcome sin, that we wouldn't make the mistake of thinking that because we're saved by grace, we don't have to worry about whether or not we sin. But instead, we'd see that that salvation by grace equips us to walk away. Help us to understand what this means. Help us to understand what your word is saying. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to do what your word is saying. Please, Lord, we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone says... Amen. So we're talking about, in the book of James, faith that works. We're talking about this reality that, that the faith that saves us, that faith uh, in Christ alone, by grace alone, that faith that saves us, it works. It's practical. It has an outworking. It, it, it's, it's the whole theme of James ties into what Paul had said, has said in Philippians, where Paul says, Work out your salvation. Not work for, not work up, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The whole book of James kind of covers that theme. How do we work out? What does it look like to live out faith in Jesus? And so today what we're going to talk about is that faith and how that faith overcomes sin. And sin's kind of one of these words that's a, it's a, it's kind of a flashpoint, isn't it? You say sin and it kind of makes people bristle. Sounds old-fashioned, it sounds harsh, might even sound a bit judgmental. Sin, what's that? Well, in a nutshell, sin is basically us refusing God's rule over our lives. That's what sin is. There's two kind of categories of sin, you might say. There's sins of commission. Sins that, of things that we do wrong. So like if you commit adultery, you've sinned, you've done that. If you lie, you've sinned. If you steal, you've sinned. So there's sins of commission. But there's also sins of omission. Things that we should do that we don't. When we don't love, when we don't worship, when we don't pray, when we don't serve. Those are sins of omission. And really one of the things about the issue of sin that I think is so intimidating to us is that if we do define sin the way God defines sin, that is, 
Anytime we refuse his rule over our lives, the reality is we sin all the time. Especially as we think about what we've been discussing on the four Sundays, when we talk about uh, growing in love, we talked about growing in understanding God's love for us, and last time we talked about growing in our love for God. And if the standard that God sets is summed up in love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, if that's the standard, we think, okay, that's what God says. God says, I rule over you, I command this, I'm calling you to live this way. If we don't do it, or when we don't do it, we are in sin. And that's hard, isn't it? That's sobering. I don't know about you, but when I think of it just like that, if I, if I just stay there and don't go any farther in this issue, I think, pack it in. If, 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 I, there's no way I'm ever going to be anything but this. But we have to remember that the Bible teaches us that Christ doesn't just provide for our forgiveness from sin, but also our freedom from sin. That we can learn to overcome sin. We can grow in victory over sin. That we don't have to keep ignoring the things that we should do. We don't have to keep doing the things that we shouldn't. And James is wanting to talk about this. Now, it's important that we recognize the difference between sin and temptation. Sin is refusing God's rule over life, but temptation is realizing that you have the option to. And what I mean by that is not the option to, like as in God doesn't care, but the option is to you have a choice to make. The temptation is you recognize, I have a choice. I can say, yes, God, I want to do what you would have me do, or I can say, stuff that, I want to do what I want to do. You have a choice to make. And so it's important that we recognize the difference between temptation and sin. It's important that we recognize that what we're talking about here is not overcoming temptation, getting to a point in your life where you're never going to be tempted. That's not going to happen. Actually, we're not even talking about getting to a place, a place where you're never going to sin again. That's not going to happen until we see Jesus face to face. But we are talking about what it means to, how do we, what do we need to know and understand so that we can overcome sin in our lives, so we can submit to God's good rule in our life. So that's kind of what we're going to look at today. Now notice, he's, James starts off by saying, blessed is the man. And right away, I don't know about you, but I think about the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus saying, you know, blessed is, is he who, um, uh, was it, I just forgot the first one. What's the first one? Help me out here. Come on. I went blank. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Thank you, Derek. Blessed is the poor in spirit. And, and that reality of blessed meaning, oh, how happy. That, the blessed, to be blessed means you're in, in, a, in a good place, in a good position. How blessed is the person who's poor in spirit, knows that they are bankrupt spiritually. They don't have what it takes to do what God would have them do. And, and James says here, blesses the man, notice, who endures temptation. And this is the thing that we have to start off with because I want to give you three main points. And the first one, of course, if you have your little notes that we've passed out to you is this, is that the Jesus is going to reward those who resist sin. And it's important for us to recognize this because if we're going to resist sin, if we're going to learn to overcome sin, guess what? That means that we, it's going to require endurance. Do you guys know what endurance is? I started running again recently. And I would not say I'm a runner because I hate running. But I, it, it's, it's been good for me as much spiritually as it has been physically because as you have to endure 
as you have to kind of push through when you want to quit. And I want to quit after about three blocks. When you want to quit, but you push yourself and you, and you try to concentrate, you endure, you know, okay, this suffering, and that's what endurance means. The word endure means to suffer for a purpose. But this suffering is going to lead to my benefit. I'm going to endure the pains in my ankles and the pains in my knees and the fact that my lungs are going to explode and that I'm reminded about how much I jiggle when I run. Not fun. I'm going to endure all that stuff because in enduring that stuff, I know there's going to be a good outcome. So James is saying clearly, listen, there's a blessing that comes to us when we endure, when we suffer on purpose, when we realize, when we're coming against a situation where we think, okay, I could refuse God on this or I could submit to God on this. We're blessed to endure that temptation as much as it's tempting to go, "Mm, I want to just do my own thing, to say, no, I'm going to suffer and say, God, what do you want me to do instead? Endurance. Now, he also says clearly here in verse 12 that that resistance is going to be rewarded. He says, for he who has been For when he has been approved, that is, he's passed the test, he's gone through the temptation, he's gone through the trial. When he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Now, Jesus said a similar thing about this in Revelation chapter 2. Listen to this. Jesus says, he he had John write this down, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Same word for tempted here. And you will have tribulation ten, ten days, but be faithful unto death. And notice he says, I will give you the crown of life. See, you're not enduring for no reason. You're not just enduring because you think it's a nice thing for me to do. God's been nice to me. I'll be nice to him. God promises, Jesus promises, and he wants us to be motivated by there's a, there's a reward I mean, let's just think about this logically, okay? If God is who God has said he is, and we're going to talk about who he is in just a minute, but if God is as good as he says he is, and we should obey him, and it's only for our benefit that obedience comes, God doesn't gain from our obedience, we gain from our obedience. If that's the case, think about this. We gain from our obedience, and yet God still says, listen, when you obey, when you endure temptation, guess what? At the end of your life, you're going to be rewarded, for that which you should do anyway. <laughs> That's amazing. And I think it's important for us to recognize this, that God's not just saying, hey, hey, you know what? Just give up sin because I want you to suffer for this for a while. I want, you just, I want your life to be as miserable as possible, so just give up sin. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, listen, I have something better for you. There's a reward for this endurance. And it's also amazing to me because it's, in this, we see this reality that James is bringing out that, that God recognizes that there is a suffering involved in us saying no to sin. That the temptation is difficult. It's, there's a pull that we feel in being tempted. And it's important that we recognize that temptation isn't sin. We'll talk about that in a second. But also notice what he says, verse 12 still. He says, which the Lord, who made this promise? Jesus did. The Lord has promised to those, notice, who love him. See, when we resist sin, when we say no to sin, we're demonstrating, God, I want to do this for you. Again, isn't this kind of common sense? Think about the rest of your relationships, the most important relationships that you have. For those of you who are married, think about your spouse I guarantee you've been tempted with someone beside your spouse. Guarantee it. 
but why don't you go there? Well, there might be the social uh, threat of, of being ostracized. If you do something wrong, you're afraid of that. Maybe it's the, the fear of God. That's good as well. But isn't it boiled down to, I love my spouse and I don't want to hurt them? Isn't that really the motivation that keeps you on the straight and narrow in that relationship? I mean, even non-believers do that. See, the reality here is that when we say, okay, God, I trust you, that what you say is best for me, so I want to be under your rule and I want to resist the sin that's tempting me because I, I love you, Lord, and, and I want to demonstrate that by saying no to these things. It's interesting because the author of Hebrews says that when we're, when we're in that situation, when we're wanting to love God and resist sin, that we should consider Jesus. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, For consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. I want you to think about this. When did Jesus resist sin unto bloodshed? Now, your first thought might be, oh, the cross. But actually, when did he really resist sin to bloodshed? The Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is praying, not my will, but your will be done, and he sweats great drops of blood. That's resisting sin in the bloodshed. The sin of saying, I'm going to refuse God's will for me. He knew that God's will for him was to become that, that sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he said yes to it. He submitted himself to it. And so the author of Hebrews is saying to us, listen, submit to God. Look at Jesus. Jesus did this. Jesus loved the Father to the point that he was willing to go to the cross. You love God the same way. You, you submit to as well. Now, now, can you imagine, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think about this. What if, what if God said to us, listen, what if God said to us, I want you to be crucified. Forget about taking the sins of the world on you. Just going through the physical act of crucifixion. What if I want you to do that? I ain't doing that, God. There's no way. Hey, it's okay. You're going to be resurrected. Yeah, but, yeah, but. God says, no, no, listen, you can trust me. I'm going to reward you. There's going to be a blessing in this. Submit to me. Endure the temptation to walk away. And so James wants to be clear with us. He says, listen, this is, this is what you need to know. That there's a reward for you. You're blessed as you endure temptation. You're blessed when you resist sin. Now, it's important, James wants us to understand, it's important that we recognize that Jesus never leads us towards sin. I mean, he even, Jesus even taught us to pray that, didn't he? He taught us to pray to the Father, lead us not into temptation. The Father never wants to lead us into temptation. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The Bible does teach that God allows us to go into a place of testing. We, we see this even with Jesus in, 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 the, in the Gospels where that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the Bible says. And he was led there to be tested. Now here's what's interesting. That um, the word for test, in fact the word for test that we just had read earlier and this word in verse 2 of chapter 1 of James for trial and the, verse, and the word here in, chapter, in verse 12 for temptation, all those words are the same word in the Greek. The word for test, temptation, trial, all the same word in the original language. So it's interesting because the Bible says that God leads, led, that God the Spirit led Jesus to be tested, but then the Bible says God doesn't test anyone. How does that work? Here's the reality. 
what, what James wants us to see here is that God is not leading us to a place where we'll fail. God's desire is not to say, I want to see you sin. And it's important that we see this. James is, is, is saying, look, we know this because of the character of God. We know that he doesn't want us to, to, to lead us to sin because of the character of God. Because here's what he says. Notice in verse 13, he says, no one alone say I'm tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted. Literally, listen, literally it says, God is untemptable, which means God has no attraction for anything that's sinful. He has no desire for anything that's sinful. None. Now, we can't even fathom that, can we? Because we all have a desire for sinful things. But he has none of that. And, and if you need to, to know, sort of, the, here's maybe I could say I, one of the top 10 theological things that you could get through your head. You ready? Here it is. One of the top 10 things for sure. Ready? God is not like us. He's not. He's not like us. I was talking to somebody that I knew really well back in California trying to share Jesus with this person. And they said, you know, John, when I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm going to go to heaven. And you know what I think? I think when we see God, he's going to look just like us. Now, that's a natural thing for us. We tend to think, yeah, we think so highly of ourselves. We think, well, God must be like me. God's nothing like us. Thank God he's nothing like us. He's not drawn to anything wicked, sinful, or even selfish. Even when the Bible talks about the glory of God, God's own glory, that God's interested in His own glory, it's not the way we think of that in English. Like, you know, no guts, no glory, or, you know, go for the glory, which means exalt yourself. God only exalts Himself in our eyes, or He only wants to be exalted because He can't give us anything better than Himself. He's not being selfish. He's being generous by saying, glory in me. See, my unique value is what glory means because there's nothing greater than myself. So God's not like us. He's not selfish like us. He's not sinful like us. And he doesn't want anybody to be that way. And James is saying, this is what you have to understand. If you're going to recognize how you're going to start learning to to overcome sin, you've got to know at least God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for anybody. In fact, when we talk about, listen, when we talk about God, we're talking about the fact that he had this divine nature, okay? That means he's opposed to all sin, he's not attracted to sin, and ultimately he's going to destroy all sin. And that's good news. I know it's kind of scary for us as sinners to think God's going to destroy all sin. Oh no, what does that mean for me? And it is scary until you come to know Jesus, until you realize what he's done for you. But the reality is, listen, the reality is, it's good news because think about all the sin that's done in the world. Think about all the, the greed and, the, and the, the slavery and the corruption and, the, and, and just the, the wretchedness of this world. That's all going to be gone one day because God's, he, he hates it and He's going to deal with it. No, if we're going to overcome sin, we've got to recognize He never leads us there. That's not his, it's not even in His nature to do so. He cannot lead us into sin. He hates it. Let's just go through trials, yes, but those trials just expose where we're at, and those trials are meant to purify us or perfect us or grow us. So he says, he says okay, God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but this is what happens, notice, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desire 
and enticed. Now here's where it gets a little tricky. Because as we look at this, we think, okay, that's easy to understand when it comes to us as humans, okay? But we have to deal with, anytime we're anywhere in Scripture, we've got to deal with, well, what about Jesus, don't we? Because what does the Scripture say about Jesus? It says of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. How does this work? If God can't be tempted by sin and Jesus is God in the flesh, how could he be tempted? This is an important thing. It's, 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 this is where we have to recognize uh, the, 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 how, how precise we need to be in our understanding of God, how precise we need to be in our theology. Because we talk about the divine nature, the fact that he cannot be attracted to sin, he hates sin, he's going to destroy sin, but there's also something unique about the nature of Jesus, now, let's think about this for a second, okay? Let's talk about first fallen nature. Let's talk about our fallen nature, what we're like as sinners, okay? We know that we've inherited Adam's sin, okay? Adam chose the sin. Since then, we've been sinners by nature and by choice, okay? So we choose to sin. Why? Because James says here really clearly, right? He says we choose to sin because we're drawn away or we're baited by our own desires, and he's using language of like someone who's trying to trap animals or fish. We've been baited. We, 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 you know, we saw the worm. We thought, oh, I think I want that worm. Or we saw the, the piece of you know, raw meat on the trap. Oh, I want that piece of raw meat. You know. we're, we're like an animal drawn to a trap. Oh, I think I want that. Because we have this thing in us that's drawn to evil. And so what happens, we're drawn that way, and what happens, we, because we're enticed that direction, eventually, as we'll see in verse 15, we, we, if it's conceived, that desire is conceived, literally it's snatched, it's grabbed, then what happens? It brings forth sin, and sin eventually brings forth death. Now here's the thing. Adam, as in Adam and Eve, Adam did not have that sin nature that we have until after he sinned. When Adam was made, God says really clearly when he makes Adam and Eve that all creation, including Adam and Eve, was very good. There was no such thing as sin in the earth at that time. All that God had made was very good. So you have a situation then, okay, if, it was all, if Adam didn't, wasn't a sinner, how did he become tempted? Well, this goes back to the original Definition of temptation, important to understand. Temptation is the realization that you have an option not to obey God. And so what happens is, of course, you know the story. Adam and Eve are there. God had made it really clear. I want you to enjoy this paradise that I've made for you. I want you to tend it and keep it. i got work for you to do. It's going to be good for you. And we're going to walk in fellowship every day in the garden. But there's this one tree that I don't want you to eat from. I want you to be able to obey me in that, to say no to that temptation. So don't eat from that tree. Anything else you can eat from, but just not that tree. And God, even that, God had intended for Adam and Eve's good. They could grow from making that choice to say, I'm going to say no to, to, to self and yes, yes to God. But what happens? The, the serpent comes. And he tempts Eve. And we get this indication that from the story that as he's tempting Eve, Adam's sitting there doing nothing. And he's tempting Eve. 
And he basically convinces Eve, you, you can't trust what God says. We're going to talk more about this next week. But you can't really trust what God says. Because, you know, God's trying to hold back from you. If you eat this, you're going to be just like God. And Eve goes, cool. I can do this. She takes a bite, gives some to Adam, he takes a bite. And they both recognize everything's changed. Everything's changed. Everything's become broken. Now, Jesus was like Adam in this sense. Without sin, like the first Adam, the difference is when Adam chose to just sit there twiddling his thumbs, you know, Eve was deceived. Adam knew what was going on. He just disobeyed. Scripture's pretty clear about that in 1 Timothy. Adam just disobeyed. When Adam disobeyed, he failed. But what Adam, the first Adam, failed to do, the last Adam, this is what the Bible calls Jesus, the last Adam succeeded. He didn't fail. He obeyed God perfectly his entire life. His obedience to God was so perfect, so pristine, that even at his death, the only thing anybody could accuse him of was claiming to be God's only son. Guess what? He was. He was perfect. Think about this. Seriously, about the perfection of Christ. I want you to think about this. It's kind of off topic a little bit, but I think it's important. So there's Jesus being beaten. There's Jesus being crucified. Why? Because he refused to deny that he was actually God's only begotten son. Who gave birth to Jesus? Mary did. Who's watching him being crucified? Mary is. All she would have had to do is say, okay, it's a false. I wasn't a virgin. Okay, it's false. Um, uh, I've seen him lie. He lied just like his brothers and sisters. It's false. He couldn't be the son of God. But she couldn't. Because she knew he was perfect. She knew he had never sinned. You moms, could you watch your son be crucified knowing it was for a lie and not say something? I don't think so. No, he was perfect. He was without sin, though tempted as we are. This is important to understand when we're talking about the fact that Jesus never leads us towards sin. Jesus calls us to follow him. He walked the path always away from sin, always in the will of God. There was never anything that God told him to do that he didn't do. There was never anything that God said don't do that he did. He always did the will of the Father, it says. And he wants to lead us towards that same direction. He never leads us towards sin. This is important because I'll tell you what, I can't tell you how many times I've done counseling with young couples I'm not picking on young people, but this is a good example. How many young couples have done counseling with and they're dating and they basically get tempted so they start sleeping together and they feel a bit guilty so they said, okay, we're Christians, we're gonna pray about it. So God, is this okay? Oh, you know what? I feel like maybe it is. I think God said it's okay. We prayed about it, John, and God said it's okay for us. Really? God led you to sin? When the Bible says clearly, Sex outside of marriage is wrong. I'm not trying to be harsh or pick on that issue and definitely not trying to condemn you if you've fallen. I'm just trying to say at least call a spade a spade. At least see that it's sin. See, the reality is Jesus never leads us this way and if we think, well, there might be sometimes when he wants us to lie or it's okay if we do this or it's okay if we do that, that kind of stuff's needed in this world. If you think that way, guess what you're going to do? You're going to dive straight into that. But he never leads us that way. And the same goes for when we look at our circumstances. Because remember, James said earlier in chapter 1, look, count all joy when you get to, into various trials. Because why? Because you're being perfected by this. Let patience have its perfect work. You're being perfected. 
by those difficult times, but we're going, no, God's tempting me. He wants me to do something bad, obviously, because this is so hard. That's what we think. But what is that? That's a blasphemous thought because God can't even do that. He never wants to do that. We have to understand this, guys. Again, I don't know how many times I've counseled people and they said, you know, I'm into this thing or I've fallen into this or I have this habit because, well, this is just how God made me. No, it's not. It's not how God intends you to be. It's not where God wants to leave you. Now, now James says, look, it's important we recognize this. He says, look, first thing we have to recognize Good theology, number one, right? God's not like us. But here's the other thing. If we're going to recognize that Jesus never leads us towards sin, we need to recognize the reason is because sin is never good. Never. Sin is never good. Look what he says. Verse 15. When does that desire, that temptation has conceived, it's gone from, you know, I could rebel against God, but I know I shouldn't, I'm going to endure and not do this. It goes from, ah, forget it, boom, and we grab onto it. You know what happens? Just like a bear trap, snap, you're caught. Just like a hook, boom, you're captured. You get ensnared by it. It brings forth sin. And, the, and man, James is really clear. The Bible's really clear. When it is full grown, when sin is full grown, it always brings forth death. Now, let's talk about this. Because it's really important that we see this. And I, I'm coming to you guys as a sinner, okay? I'm, I'm sharing this stuff as a sinner, as someone who struggles in a huge way with sin. My wife could tell you that. My children could tell you that. Adam could tell you that. I struggle in a big way daily with sin. But here's the thing that I've realized. Sin never turns out good, ever. Look what the Bible says in the book of James. I'm mean, sorry, in the book of Hebrews again. Where is it? Yep, skip ahead. Hebrews chapter three. It says, listen, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened, notice, through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, there's a lot in there that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. First of all, he wants us to understand we need to be aware because in any of us can be an evil heart of unbelief. What does it mean by unbelief? Does that mean I just don't believe in the gospel anymore? Sort of, but it's, it's this idea that, okay, you know what, I'm, I, I don't trust God it's departing from the living God, not just departing from facts about the faith, but departing from the living God. It's basically you saying, I don't trust God. I think this thing that he says I can't do is actually going to be good for me. I think this thing that he says I should do is actually going to be bad for me. I don't trust God. Be careful, the author says. Beware. You can have that evil heart. And he says, and, 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 the, and the scary thing about it is, you can be, if, you don't, if you're not aware, you can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Not the sin of deceit. He's not talking about the sin of lying. He's talking about the deceitfulness of sin. The fact that sin, listen, deceives us. 
The first consequence of sin is we think, eh, it's not that bad. No big deal. I've seen this personally when it comes to sins of omission. I've seen in my life, it's the sins of omission that always lead to the sins of commission. It's the things that I refuse to do that I know God would have me do. It would be for my good that lead to me getting into other sins that are really bad. So it's this issue of, I know that God wants me to pray. And I don't just mean say my prayers. I mean as the Puritans used to say, pray until I pray. I know that God wants me to fellowship with Him. And when I go, mm, I know that's important, but I'm saved by grace. God, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway, so you don't need my prayers. So you know what? I don't trust you on that one. I think I'm going to just tuck in and get some work done instead. That sin of omission leads to later on a sin of commission. Maybe in my case, that sin of, okay, I can do this on my own, and then after three or four days, I'm burned out because I'm trying to do it on my own, and I find myself wasting all kinds of time in the office, looking at Facebook or something else, and that is sin. It's amazing how that happens so often. Or the sin of omission. I'm going to make sure I have time with my family. I'm going to take that time and just, it's only going to be for them. And then I think, well, yeah, we're all busy. The kids aren't that bothered anyway. I'll just do my own thing. And then what ends up happening? I end up either encouraging them to sin in some way or I encourage myself to sin in some way. It leaves this open door for me to just do something I know I shouldn't do, whatever it could be. And this is the thing we have to recognize. Sin deceives us. Now, James, he goes on to say also that once it deceives us, once we kind of think, oh, it's not that bad, guess what? It begins to be full grown. And once it begins to grow, what does it eventually lead to? Every time, death. Isn't this what the scripture says? The wages of sin is death. Now, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, this is really sobering stuff, stay with me, okay? It says then, this is Revelation chapter 21 and also chapter 20, listen. It says, then death and Hades will be cast in the lake of fire. Praise God, one day it's all gonna be done. It says, this is the second death. Who experienced this? Listen, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into that lake of fire. He goes on to say, listen, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These are not easy verses to read, are they? But God in his grace to us wants us to recognize, listen, sin always brings death. And the death is not just the physical death. That's true too. All of us are going to die potentially. But it's a spiritual death. It's the second death. Remember, in Scripture, death is not annihilation like you're destroyed. Death is separation. So when we die physically, our, our spirit and soul are separated from our body. So the second death is a separation from God where we're separated from all the goodness that we get from God. 
It's a horrible thing. Can you see why God in love would say, listen, deal with sin. Don't mess with it. Don't play games with it. Can you see why he'd say this? Again, I'm saying this to you as a sinner. I'm saying to this who has a daily struggle with sin. Now, here's the, here's the reality, okay? We're talking about, again, how sin is never good. And I think it's important for us to recognize as sinners, okay, we're always going to struggle against sin. This is why the author of Hebrews says, look, you haven't stri- striven yet to bloodshed. you still got a lot of striving to do. Keep fighting against that sin. Keep enduring in that temptation. Don't give in to it. Fight that good fight. But notice, listen, the Scripture does teach there's going to be a time when that is going to be over. See, right now, this side of heaven, we're going to always be in the presence of sin. We're sinful people. We live with a bunch of other sinful people. You put sinful people together, guess what you get? Sin. This is what I always try to tell people in marriage counseling, premarital counseling specifically. Okay, you're a sinner and you're a sinner. So when you get together, are you going to have more sin or less sin? Uh, less. Okay, let me do this again. You're a sinner and you're a sinner. You put them together. Two plus two is one. You get more. We're sinful people. So we've got to recognize we're not going to be free from the presence of sin until we see God face to face. And this is, again, our hope. Listen to what the Scripture says. Probably have to go back a few slides to 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. The scripture says, Now I say to you, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, because we have these sinful bodies and we live in a sinful world, we're not going to see the kingdom in its fullness until something's done about that. So he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. When Jesus comes back, guess what happens? We get resurrected. Even if we're still alive. If we're still alive, it's called the rapture. If we're not still alive, it's called resurrection. But we get changed completely. He says, notice, for this corruptible must put on incorruptible And this mortal must put on uh, immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought the past the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? This is our hope. We fight against sin now because we recognize that we're not going to be completely victorious now, but we are going to be then. Each time we fight against sin now, what are we doing? We are building a longing in our hearts for heaven. We're seeking first the kingdom. We're investing in our permanent home. Each time we say no to sin, each time we say yes to God. Remember too, often it's the sins of omission that are the things that we're most guilty of. So when we say no to that and say, no, God, I am going to do what you want me to do here. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to love this person who I don't like right now. I'm going to do it. By your grace, I'm going to do it. By your strength, I'm going to do it. Why? Because I know, Lord, that's needing my heart to you. And one day, one day I'm going to see you and I'm not even going to want to sin anymore. Wow. 
Wow. See, this is important to recognize too because the Bible also says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, because of this verse, there have been some people who taught, see, it is possible for you to be sinless this side of heaven. Now, I don't think that's what the Scripture entails. I don't think that's what the Scripture teaches. But it is possible for you to sin less, <laughs> to be more obedient. It's not just possible. It is God's will for you. It is what He, by His Holy Spirit, is wanting to produce in you. He's wanting to change you so that the, the sins that we, that we commit with our affections, we don't love God with our heart, we want something more than we want God, we can go to God and say, God, you can change that. I want to want you more than I want anything else. God, do that in me. Guess what? God's going to do that in you. God's going to do that in you. We can believe, we can experience, it is God's will for us that we would grow in this. That's what holiness is. It's separating yourself from your sinfulness. It's, it's pursuing the God who's bought you the price of his own son. Now, when he says it's common to man, it's important to recognize that doesn't mean that every single person is tempted in all the same way, okay? It's, it's important that we recognize that because if, if, if we don't recognize that, sometimes we're gonna go, you know, get over it, so you're tempted. Who cares? I'm tempted too, but the truth is some people have different kinds of tempts, temptations and testings and it can be tough and we should be compassionate for that. But the, the reality is we're tempted all commonly, all of us have in common constant temptation because all of us are sinners. We're always being enticed by our own sinfulness. Guys, let's remember, Jesus never leads us towards sin. In fact, instead, what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is that he provides with the temptation a way of escape, a way we can get out of it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way we escape temptation. He is the way that we endure. He is the way that we say no to sin. It's what he does in us, what he's doing in us, what he does through us that gives us that victory. So, Jesus rewards those who resist sin. Jesus never leads us towards sin. And the last bit, Jesus is better than sin. Do you believe that? Do you agree with that? Not just in your head. I mean, seriously. Let me, let me seriously pose that question to you, your heart right now. Is Jesus better than the sin that you desire? It says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't let sin deceive you. Here's what we have to understand. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now I'm gonna talk quickly to you guys who aren't believers, okay? You guys who aren't yet Christians, you're just kind of investigating this Jesus stuff still. The Bible says that there's such a thing as what we would call common grace. That is, that God gives good things to everyone in the world, whether they believe in him or don't believe in him. So when James here says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, he means 
every good thing that every person on this planet experiences is from the good hand of God. Now, th- again, James is wanting his readers, he's, the Holy Spirit is wanting us to grab onto something about who God is, what God is like. When it says every good gift, it, it's wanting us to recognize that God provides according to his goodness. Guys, because God is good, you know what he is? He's a giver. He gives. He's good. He gives. I mean, do you know what I mean by that? I mean, have you met somebody who's like crazy generous? Like they're always just trying to, hey, yeah, yeah, have this. Well, hey, no, let me pick up that tablet. No, hey, I'll do this for you. Well, you met those kind of people. They're rare. But when you meet them, you go, man, that guy's awesome. They're always just wanting to give. They're always just wanting to bless. We recognize that giving is good. God is a giver. He's the giver of all good things. And here's the other thing too, guys. Listen, he doesn't just... Uh, give because he's good, but what he gives is good. Everything that God gives us is good. Do you realize one day when you see God face to face and you have his perspective finally and perfectly, you know what you're going to say? Everything he's done is right. You're going to say, like it says in the book uh, or in the Gospels, he has done all things well. You're going to look back at even the trials and the pain and the suffering that you went through. You're going to go, God, you're so good that you used that to bring me to this. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. It's interesting, too, when He says every perfect gift, it's that gift, that thing that He gives us that leads us to perfection, that grows us into the image of Jesus. That's what He's doing. You see, what James wants us to see, what we need to understand is, look at, yeah, we are tempted, we are sinners, and there's lots of things that draw our attention, but we have to say, okay, Jesus, you are better than that other thing that I want. I gotta tell you, any other relationship will not be a strong enough motivation. The only motivation you're gonna have, if you are trying to stay away from certain sinful activities because, well, I don't want my reputation in the church to get messed up, or... You know, I want my neighbors to think I'm nice or I want my parents to think I'm a good person, I'm doing well. If your motivation are those things, eventually you're going to say, Chuck it, I'm going to do what I want to do. The only way you're going to be able to say, I want to run from those things, I want to, I want to run into submission to God, I want to submit to His good rule of my life, is to say, okay, because He's better. And the fact that He gives good gifts proves it. I mean, guys, come on, let's, let's be honest. The truth is, it's not so much that we don't have goodness in our life, we're just not very thankful for it. We just don't want to give God glory for it. Isn't that the truth? Listen to what Jesus says. Speaking to some pretty poor people who are kind of just living hand to mouth, he says in Matthew chapter 6, this is 26 to 30, he says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
This is Jesus not saying, believe it, it's going to be yours. Believe for that power and you're going to have it. This is Jesus saying, don't you get it? Every good thing in your life comes from God. Don't you get it? Every good thing in this world comes from your good God. If the fields are beautiful, just for the sake because God's good, if the birds are fat just because God is good, how much more is he going to take care of you? So when you're tempted to try to take care of yourself and to please yourself, you say, wait a second. God is better than this. God is better than me. Jesus knows better than me. I want to do what he wants. I love this too because he goes on not just to speak of his goodness but his unchangeableness in verse 17. He says, this good and perfect gift, it's from above and it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Guys, do you recognize that God provides for us according to his sovereign and unchanging power? That his character doesn't change. God cannot change. He can only be who he is. There's a whole system of theology that's sprang up in the last 150 years called progressive theology, and it basically teaches that God is kind of expanding and growing as, you, as we go. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. You're amazed how many, how many evangelicals are influenced by this rubbish. Total opposite of what Scripture says. Look what Scripture says. Listen. The Bible says, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Listen, notice, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. <laughs> do you understand what's going on? If you know the context, you know God's rebuking his people because they're just really messing up. And he says to them, the Israelites, Jacob, O Jacob, he says, listen, the fact that you're not dead yet is because I don't change. I'm still as merciful as I've always been. I don't change. I still keep the promise that I began with you. I keep my covenants. I don't change. That's the only reason you're not toast, basically. It's such great news that God doesn't change. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Quit lusting after things you don't have. Why? Be content with such things you have. Why? Notice, for he himself has said, speaking of Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And guess what it says about Jesus? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God the Son doesn't change. The, the point of the author of Hebrews is, look, you got Jesus, what else do you want? <laughs> He's better than those things you think you desire. Now, verse 18, we're almost done. James says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, that we, we talked about this in the introduction to James, brought us forth, that phrase. It's connected to this idea of being born or born again, or what, we, what the scripture calls regeneration. Having a new life, life when there, where life was lost, life brought in again, regeneration. Being born again, as Jesus says it. And he says he's been brought forth by the word of truth. We're going to talk about the word of truth next week, but suffice it to say here, I want you to notice, it says, of his own will, he's done it. Do you know what that means? That means there was absolutely no outward coercion toward God to do it. Sometimes we get this mindset, because again, we make the mistake of thinking God's like us. 
So God only does things if there's an outward motivation. So we get this mindset of like, God made the earth, oh, it's beautiful, it's awesome. We mess it up, God goes, oh no, I better do something in response to that. Therefore, God says, here's my plan, I'll send Jesus and he'll fix everything. No, the Bible says he was slain before the foundation of the earth. Before God created the world, God knew we would do what we do. He says, that's okay, here's my plan. I'm gonna make the world perfect. It's gonna go into sin. I'm gonna send my own son. He's gonna redeem the world back and people are gonna know me in a way they couldn't have known me otherwise. This is what my plan is. This is what I wanna do. It's plan A. Guys, do do you recognize what that means too? That means there is absolutely zero resistance in the person of God to save you. It's his own plan. You don't have to say, God, come on, I'll be really good. I'll try really hard. Save me, please. Help me, please. You don't have to convince God. You can't coerce God. Guess why? He's only motivated by his own character, which is love. Check this out. Listen to this. It says, I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I like the way it paraphrases Ephesians 1.5. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Wow. God is happy to save you. God is happy to forgive you. God is happy to adopt you. Do you get that? We're always trying to please God. Look at me. I had a friend once said he realized one day after years of trying to please God by his own efforts that he says, all I am, his words, am a dancing turd. Those were his words. And it was a great picture. (laughs) Because he thought, what could be more repulsive than that? Hey God, am I pleasing to you now? And yet God says, listen, Listen, God says it pleases him. He's done it at his own will. Look, you're not coercing me. I just want to save you. Do you believe that? Do you believe it pleases God to save you? That God's not going, ugh, how long? Jesus felt that way as a man. How long do I have to endure with you? Can I just go right to the cross and resurrection and start this process, Lord? Because these guys are bad. God says, It pleases me. This is going to be a good thing. It's going to be a good thing. We have to believe, guys, listen, that Jesus is better than our sin and that he's going to provide for us because it's according to his plan to save us. He wants to save us. Listen, Jesus said, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's, notice, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you realize, guys, when we pray and say, God, help me, deliver us from temptation, when we pray that, we're not overcoming a reluctant God going, no, you figure it out. No, I'm not going to help you. Keep asking, we'll see. He's not doing that. He's pleased to give us the kingdom. He's pleased to help us if we're willing to trust him that he's actually better than what we think we want. I think of all the things we're going to look at in the book of James, this is the toughest part. It's the toughest part because it exposes not just our actions, but our appetites. It exposes our affections. Because the truth is, we do often believe that what we want is better 
than Jesus. Sometimes the only reason we don't just chuck it all aside is because we think, well, maybe if it is true, well, then I'm going to end up in hell, and that's kind of scary, and I don't want that. Now, hell's not a bad motivation to look to God and say, I need to change, but it's not going to change you. The only way you're going to change is to know his love for you. The only way you're going to turn away from sin and say, God, I want what you want more than I want. The only way you're going to submit to the rule of God in your life is to believe that he's better, that he's better than what you want. 